IBC family. <laughs> oh man, kids, right? <laughs> Abby and I this morning were like, Lord, thank you and help all at the same time. I think, I don't know if I was praising or confessing on the way to church this morning, but uh, needless to say, it was, I, I'm obviously very blessed. Speaking of children, I have a, a fictitious but uh, timely story for you. Uh, there's a story about a little boy who really, he desperately wanted $100 from God. And so because he wanted $100 from God, he's like, what better time to ask God? God, you say to ask anything in prayer, and so I'm going to ask, can I have $100? Well, unfortunately, $100 did not arrive as he expected, and so he actually wrote a letter to the post office to God because perhaps God did not hear him. And so he writes a letter and the postmaster kind of gets wind of it and finds it kind of humorous and actually forwards it on to the president of the United States. Upon which they open it up. The president goes, oh, isn't that sweet? Hey, let's send him, he tells his aide, hey, let's send him $5 back. And of course, the boy, when he gets the letter, is appreciative that like, wow, God, thank you for $5. That's amazing. He, he, he writes this in response as a thank you note. He says, Dear God, thank you very much for sending me the money. However, I noticed for some reason you sent it through Washington. And as usual, they kept most of it. <laughs> there are some things that are certain in life, right? Many things are uncertain, you never really know, but some things, death and taxes, correct? Death and taxes. Well, taxes is kind of the theme for our time here in our passage this morning, and in Matthew chapter 22, if you would turn in your Bibles, uh, Matthew chapter 22, we're going to actually start in verse 15. Now, a a perceptive or a consistent uh, participant of IBC will notice that we actually skipped a passage, and our beloved George Wood is going to preach on that passage next week. And so we are kind of jumping ahead a little bit in Matthew 22, and we are going to be speaking on taxes and government and all of that that is kind of implied. So read along with me in verse 15 of Matthew 22, and we will unpack for us. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually going from uh, Michelle's phone here to run the slides, but it keeps going to sleep mode, and I don't know his password for his phone. So <laughs> anyways, we'll get it figured out. Read along with me in verse 15 of Matthew 22. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him, that is Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, And teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. 
Just to give you kind of an idea of where we are, Jesus is obviously in Jerusalem at this time. It is Passion Week. Thanks, brother. It is Passion Week, and uh, it's two days prior to his crucifixion. It's Wednesday, Friday, Jesus dies, but Wednesday, right now, we see that Jesus is still having some intense interactions with the religious leaders as well as uh, the common people. And we see that the religious leaders, they're just, they're biting at the bit. They want to take Jesus out. They, they're hoping to do it actually before Passover, right? And so they're like, do we gotta do something? Now Jesus isn't on our home turf. We, have, we must act. And they've tried everything. They've tried to catch him in his words. They've tried to catch him in a lie. And they, without, without fail, they cannot seem to trip Jesus up. And so what they do is they send their little minions, right? They send, their, they send their little disciples and stuff. And so, though they might stand out themselves, like with their religious garb or whatever, they send their disciples along with the Herodians to see if they can trip Jesus up. Now, just to give you a, a, a better understanding of this, the kind of the, the story here, the Herodians and the Pharisees could not be more polarized, right? They, are, they were the very definition of opposite, you see, for the Pharisees, for example, they were highly religious. But the Herodians were secular. They were humanists. They were not considered or had any reputation of being religious whatsoever. The Pharisees were pro-God, but the Herodians were pro-government. The Pharisees were anti-Herod. Herodians were very pro-Herod. The Pharisees were anti-tax. Herodians were pro-tax. I'm not talking politics right now, by the way. But one thing they did have in common, even though they were completely polarized on perspectives, on anything, they had one thing in common, and that was this. They hated Jesus. Because Jesus comes on the scene, and he's disrupting everything and life as we know it. He is coming in, and the things that he's saying, the way he's portraying himself, what he is doing, the people are following, and their system, their structure, everything they have kind of safely uh, that they know is being dismantled before their eyes. And so they hate Jesus, and that's why they are on a, a mission to try to take Jesus out. So even though they are, they, in normal life, they do not like each other, at this time, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Now these, these, little, uh, these disciples, these minions, conspire against Jesus, and then and this time their strategy is to kind of to, to, to try to, flat, to kind of flatter Jesus, right? They're trying to kind of speak uh, sweet nothings to him, so to speak. They're trying to, to kind of go, oh, Jesus, you're just amazing. Of course, with the intent of helping Jesus, or potentially that Jesus would lower his guard after hearing all these nice things. They say things like, teacher, we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God truthfully, And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Actually, everything they say is true. Everything they say about Jesus is absolutely 100% correct, but they don't believe it. They don't believe a lick of it. Though they're saying it, they don't believe anything about it, but they are saying it because they want to look good by people. And interestingly enough, they say, Jesus, you don't care about the opinions of anybody. You're not swayed by appearances, and yet they are seeking to look good in the eyes of people while at the same time trying to trip Jesus up, to entangle him in his words, and though they want to, in a sense, be innocent, they are trying to have Jesus uh, be identified as guilty on a secular level, on a political level. By the way, kind of a side note here, when people are buttering you up, 
with a lot of flattery, a lot of, you know, nice things, maybe especially when it seems kind of out of left field, like they're not normally this way to you, it's probably a good idea to hold that a little open-handedly. They might be wanting something from you. It's like, it's much with my kids sometimes. Dad, you're the best dad ever. Dad, thank you so much. Dad, I just love you so much. All right, let's get to the point. What do you want? You know, it's like, what are, you, what, what are you kind of building up to? Let's get to the ultimate question on your mind right now. So they ask Jesus this question, right? To entangle him in his words, they ask him a question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now what's tricky about their question is this. If Jesus says yes to their question, then in, in some sense, or at least potentially, he would be in trouble with the Jews because by saying yes, Jesus would be elevating the, a pagan nation over God's own people. Now, on the other hand, if Jesus says no to this question, he'd be in trouble with Rome, and and, and in fact, he'd be guilty of sedition because he'd be opposing the Roman rule. And so, in a sense, they're asking, what's it going to be, Jesus? No matter how you answer this question, you're going to be wrong. You're going to be guilty in some fashion. You see, that they think they got him. And yet, Jesus sees right through their hypocrisy. Their their false affirmation, their empty flattery does not even faze him. And he calls their bluff and he responds with an important lesson for all of us. And that lesson is this. Christians are called to submit to governing authorities because of a primary submission to God. Christians are called to submit to governing authorities because of a primary submission to God. Let's unpack that for a moment here. And let's just, there's two points I want to emphasize based on Jesus' response to these disciples. First of all, the first point is we are called to submit to governing authorities as to the Lord. You and I, Christians, followers of Jesus, are called to submit to governing authorities as to the Lord, not because they're always worthy or because they're godly or because they even make the right decision. It's as to the Lord. Jesus says this, show me a coin for the tax. So they bring him a a denarius. That was the payment for a poll tax. It was kind of a census tax. And Jesus says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, it's interesting that word render uh, uh, implies something. Render means to pay or to give back, which means it implies a certain kind of debt. It, it, It signifies an obligation to return what doesn't actually belong to you. It's like if you loan something out to somebody, the expectation more than likely is that you would give it back, you would get it back in return at some point, right? It's not you didn't give it away, you lent it in some sense, but you expect it back. In this context, Jesus says, yes, it is lawful to pay the toll tax because look whose inscription, look whose image is on the coin. It belongs to him, ultimately. It belongs to Caesar. His image is on this. Therefore, he is not only lawful in this tax, you are obligated to pay this tax because what you have actually belongs to the emperor. 
Jesus will actually go on to emphasize even further, and I believe it's very clear in this short but profound passage that the, the legal obligation is not only to pay the tax, but there is a moral obligation to pay the tax. Practically speaking, what this means for you and for me is that even if a government is corrupt and potentially using their tax money for purposes that you would not identify with or even condone, you are still morally obligated to pay the tax. I think John MacArthur said it well when he says, isn't it interesting that the government that executed the Son of God was still to be paid taxes by God's people? The government that was about to, to, to sacrifice, to put to death the Son of God is the same government that are to be paid taxes by God's people. Now, if we were just to kind of be very specific to this text, we would just be talking about taxes, but I think there is a broader implication, there is a broader lesson to be gleaned and to walk away from, and that is this. It's not just about taxes, but there's a broader obligation that Christians have as citizens of whatever nation they identify with. There are multiple passages in the Scripture that, um, that speak to our obligation to governing authorities. And, for example, the most common one that has gotten a lot of fanfare this year is Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13 is a passage that uh, has been kind of brought to the limelight, especially this year, because there are, there's a lot of opinions and perspectives, but here's, here's just a, a, a helpful tip when we read Scripture. The most plain reading of Scripture is the best reading of Scripture. In other words, lots of times it doesn't require a lot of obstacles or um, acrobatics to come to some sort of understanding. The plain reading of the text is probably the interpretation of the text. So what does Paul say in Romans 13 in regards to governing authorities? He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no one, no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities, what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. He goes on to say a few verses later, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul says elsewhere in First Timothy chapter 2, he says, I urge you about supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all the people you like. No, that doesn't say that there. It says, I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, Godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Or listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 2. He says, Be subject to the, for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Titus 3.1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. These are just a sampling of passages that we can look to as far as our divine obligation as Christians, as followers of Jesus, that we are called to be subject to the governing authorities over us. As national citizens of whatever country you may be a part of, as Christians we have a divine mandate to not only obey governing authorities, but to pay whatever taxes they require and to pray for those who are in authority. In fact, if I could say it this way, our witness before the world about our Lord is on display, at least in part, in how we fulfill this divine obligation. Let me say that again. Our witness to the world about our Lord is on display, in part, by how we fulfill this divine obligation. So it somewhat begs the question, what are you or what am I communicating by a, submit, uh, by a willing submission to governing authorities? Maybe another question is appropriate. What conclusions would those who are of this world make about you who belong to Christ by the way you submit to governing authorities? You might recall that in, in the spring, if you were with us, if you were joining us, uh, in the spring we had a kind, of a, a kind of a heart-to-heart on this very subject. And just to kind of highlight some key points to this, I, I emphasize this part because I believe this is what Scripture teaches. It is that we are citizens of God's kingdom first, and then secondly, we are citizens of another nation. As those who have been bought by the blood of Jesus... We are citizens of heaven's kingdom first. And secondly, we are citizens of another nation. And because we are citizens of God's kingdom first, we are divinely obligated to be faithful citizens of our temporary kingdom, wherever that may be. So as I said, and I will remind us again, that means we submit to governing authorities even if they're ungodly. That means we submit to governing authorities even if you don't like them. That means we we submit to governing authorities even if we disagree with them. Christians are to submit to any governing authority as to the Lord. It is your obedience to the Lord that compels you, that influences your your submission to governing authorities. It's because we belong to the Lord. Now, I know what's probably in some of your minds is, well, when do we resist? And that goes away from the text, but let me just say it very briefly. This is what's been um, influencing the elders of this church as we've been navigating this very interesting year we've been all, all been a part of. And it came really from the words of R.C. Sproul, who said it this way, if any ruler, any president, any authority commands you to do something that God forbids or forbids you to do something that God commands, then you, mu- you may disobey. In fact, you must disobey. So if our governing authority 
commands us to do something that God forbids or forbids us to do something that God commands, then we have the obligation to resist accordingly. But uh, beyond that, if that is not the case, then as Peter exhorts, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And that brings us really to our our next point here, really our second point, our final point, our most important point. And that is this. We are called to submit to God because we belong to Him. We are called to submit to God because we belong to Him. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Well, what belongs to God? Everything. Especially you. What belongs to God is everything. Just as the Roman coin had Caesar's image stamped on it, and therefore he had ownership and jurisdiction over it, so also every person has been stamped with the image of God. Therefore you belong to God. You see, the whole other animal kingdom does not belong to God in the same way or in the same, to the same degree. Yes, God owns everything, but as human beings, we, have, we are image bearers of God. Therefore, we belong to God. Followers of Jesus have been, in a sense, minted in heaven. That's why Paul will say this, but our citizenship is in heaven. Or he says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Paul says elsewhere, God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. That seal is kind of a uh, is is kind of an illustration to the signet ring. You know, back in the olden days, right? Uh, kings used to have a ring, and it was basically it authenticated anything they sent out. Without the seal or kind of this this impression upon a, a, a blob of wax, it could have been from anybody. But he goes like, no, this there's only one of a kind. This this ring is only there's only one made. It's my seal. This is what has happened. It is uh, it is from the king himself. It is from the ruler himself. And God, in a sense, he says. Your, my spirit, which is on you, is a seal. It's a signet. It's, a, it's minted. It's, it's like you are, in a sense, reserved. You are taken. We belong to God. By the way, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing. We belong to God. And because we belong to God we, and we bear his image and because we are purchased with his blood and because we are sealed by his spirit, that means he owns everything about us. He owns your stuff. He owns your time. He owns your money. He owns your career. He owns your retirement. He owns your success. Everything. As followers of Jesus, he owns it all. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. So I think the question for you and for me, IBC family, is this. Are you rendering to God the things that are God's? In your life, are you rendering to God the things that belong to God? There's passages such as Malachi chapter 1 
where the prophet says this, the Lord of heaven's army says to the priest, a son honors his father and a servant respects his master. If I am your father and master, where are the honor and respect I deserve? You have shown contempt for my name. So to render the things that belong to God means to honor God as he deserves. Or listen to what Micah the prophet says in chapter 6. He says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. So the question is, am I being obedient to God? Am I doing what he's asking me to do? Or listen to Malachi chapter 3. God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby, and thereby put me to the test as the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. What is, Mal- what is Malachi saying there? He's like, don't rob God of what belongs to him. Be faithful in your generosity. Be good stewards of God things. Everything you have, everything you own actually doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. And as his followers, he desires that we be generous like he's generous. The reason why we give regularly is because God gives constantly. But perhaps, and this isn't to make it across the board or to overly generalize it, This isn't prosperity gospel or anything, but perhaps some of you are struggling financially because you have been unfaithful in your generosity. It's the the idea that I've heard over and again, once I get to a certain financial level, then I'll be generous. And yet Jesus praises the widow's might. She gave more than anybody else. Matthew 6:33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. IBC family are we seeking eternal things, the eternal things of God over and above the temporary things of this world? What is our ultimate passion? What are we ultimately longing for? What are the tr- genuine affections as we've already discussed of our heart? Romans 12.1, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Translation, have you surrendered to God fully? Not 50%, not 80%, not 98%, 100%. Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. I think something that we all need to do on a regular basis, but we're going to take time to do right now, is we're going to take a time of reflection. Perhaps the Lord is speaking to you by His Spirit. Perhaps He is saying to you, 
Maybe I have not quite rendered everything that belongs to God. Maybe I've been resistant or I've been holding back of things that I know that God has been, hey, hey, Aaron, I want this. Oh, not that, Lord, not that. No, and God's saying, no, I want that. Are you rendering to God the things that belong to God? I want you to take just a few moments, and this is your time just to do some real business with the Lord. Father, as has already been acknowledged, we just say corporately, Father, that we trust You. We trust You because You are in control of all things. This election is already known by You. It doesn't mean that we just sit idly by doing nothing. We play our part faithfully. But Father, we trust You because You are God and there is no other. You are the one who puts rulers and kings and and, and authorities in place We may not understand it from our limited perspective, but Father, you are doing something on a global scale to glorify yourself, to usher in your kingdom. And so Father, we want to be about that. We want to be kingdom-minded. Not just so temporary, not our comforts. That's not our highest goal. It's your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, to that end, help us change our minds, change our hearts. May we be resolute in our determination to care about the things of eternal matters. And in the same time, Father, may you protect your church. May Satan, may our enemy, may our flesh, may all the the surrounding circumstances, may that not cause a wedge in your church. But Father, may you grow your church, refine your church, purify your church, And I pray that our bond, because of Jesus Christ, that that bond would be all surpassing than all the other secondary, tertiary issues. Father, may we know, because we are bought with the blood of Christ, may the bond of Jesus help us link arms, and may we communicate to the world that, wow, there is a God, and He loves me. So, Father, we just say right now, we do love you. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your relentless pursuit of us. I pray that the way in which you have pursued us and been so patient and kind and long-suffering and forgiving, Father, may we extend that to one another. All for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.